This is the Cryptonomics Podcast. Telling you why cryptocurrencies are the kryptonite to the traditional banking and credit systems. Learn how to store, manage, and spend your wealth in the cryptoverse. Listen about Bitcoin, Ethereum, and decentralized finance. And hear from our successful crypto investors and miners about their strategies. Whatever you're interested in learning about, Cryptonomics is your one-stop shop to everything crypto. Now, here is your host, Ty. Hello and welcome back to the Cryptonomics Podcast. I'm here with CJ as always. This is Ty, your host. And we're doing an emergency podcast today because of what happened in the news. And uh, we're going to get right into it. CJ, how you doing? I'm doing great, man. And Bitcoin is doing even better. Like you said, the big news today, Tesla revealed that it placed 7.7% of its treasury in Bitcoin. I mean, th this is just, we're, we're starting to see the beginning of a paradigm shift, I think. Really? And what paradigm shift is that? So the, what's happening is, is that companies are deciding that they don't want to hold cash anymore. Now, the root of this problem goes into politics because it's the politicians, it's the government who is spending more money then they're collecting through tax. So if you go to usdebtclock.org, you can see the running budget and the government collects about three and a half trillion dollars worth of taxes, but they consistently spend over $7 trillion. And that budget continues, that deficit continues to grow and grow and grow. So what happens is the way they pay for that, the way they keep the budget alive and the government alive is they have to print more money. So they're continuously diluting the currency and they're doing it to the extent now where companies are saying, wow, you know, look at a uh, micro strategy. They had, um, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in cash and they were keeping their cash as their reserve asset in their treasury. Meaning if they, they would keep all their profits and they would keep it in cash and they would put it in bonds or, you know, whatever in order to preserve that value, whatever strategy they wanted to use. Well, What's happening is Michael Saylor is starting a new movement with MicroStrategy where they're saying, we don't want to hold any cash because we're losing purchasing power year after year after year after year. So we're, we're supposed to be having cash and keeping in our reserve treasury as a savings, but our savings has a leak in it. You know, Our savings bag has a hole in it and we're slowly leaking out purchasing power. This is not conducive to long-term savings. So we're going to take our money, our value out of the dollar. We're not going to hold our earnings in the dollar. We're going to make our treasury reserve asset Bitcoin. And we're going to hold our value in Bitcoin. And what this is doing is, is it's making Bitcoin become the reserve treasury asset of publicly traded companies. So this is really big because what will happen is, the demand will far outpace the supply on Bitcoin. And we could see Bitcoin perform the function of the Fed, or at least the goal of the Fed, better than the Fed itself. Wow. Yeah, no, definitely uh, definitely a big moment for, uh, for Bitcoin today. I mean, Tesla 
one of the most known companies. I mean, Elon Musk, the richest person in the world. Like, you know, if he's doing something like this, why, why wouldn't everybody follow suit? And he obviously has done something right in the past to be where he is. So I guess my question for you is, you know, why are companies looking to Bitcoin as the reserve instead of USD? Well, I think, you know, what they're seeing is what's happening to MicroStrategy. If you go take a look at MicroStrategy stock before they added Bitcoin as a reserve treasury asset versus after they added Bitcoin as a reserve treasury asset, well, the, the option becomes pretty obvious of what's going to happen to your company because the assets in your company are going to continue to grow. And we know in accounting that assets equals liabilities. Well, when you have Bitcoin as your reserve treasury asset and the value continues to grow, what you'll be able to do as a company is you'll be able to increase your liabilities. And that's exactly what MicroStrategy did. They bought a bunch of Bitcoin. It went up in value. And what did they do next? They issued more debt, right? They issued more debt. They raised more money and then they bought more Bitcoin with it. So what we're seeing here is basically a black hole of growth and demand for Bitcoin that is self-incentivized. Let me explain. If other companies begin to use Bitcoin as a reserve treasury asset, that means that as the price of Bitcoin goes up, the value of their stock is going to go up, right? Because the value of their stock is based on the valuation of the company. And if the company is holding Bitcoin and the price of Bitcoin is going up, then the value of the company is going up. Therefore, the value of the stock is going up. So as these companies are buying Bitcoin to add to their reserve treasury, the act of purchasing Bitcoin is like investing in themselves. And as the value of Bitcoin goes up, the value of their stock goes up. And as the value of their stock goes up and their assets go up, eventually they'll be able to issue more debt by selling more stock and then having that money to go capture market share and grow their business. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. So is it more of a play to, to own Bitcoin or more of a play to get rid of USD? I think it's more of a play to escape the dilution of the dollar. And at the same time, they're seeing, wow, this is not just an escape from the dilution of the dollar. This is not just an inflation hedge and a store of value. Like me, they're starting to understand Bitcoin is so much more because they're gonna be able to generate yield with that. And as Bitcoin becomes more and more valuable, not only through yield generation, but the increased store of value in the dollar price valuation, then their stocks are gonna be worth more. Then when their stock becomes worth more, they can issue more stock, they can issue more debt and raise more money to go and capture more market. So it's like a self-feeding circle where, and it started with, it started with we're holding cash and we're losing purchasing power year over year. Even in bonds, the nominal yield may be positive, but accounting for real inflation, the real yield is negative. So we're losing money year over year over year. We're losing purchasing power year over year over year. How do we protect this value? And Bitcoin is doing that for them. But what Michael Saylor is finding out is there are more pros to Bitcoin than just storing value and holding it as an inflation hedge. And that's what's exciting. That's the paradigm shift. Because if we see companies adopt the micro strategy strategy, maybe they're better named macro strategy because this is a long-term strategy. These guys are not buying Bitcoin to, to sell at the end of the cycle. They're thinking in 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years plus. They're thinking about storing value over an extremely 
macro time frame, not the smaller time frame that retail minds usually think in. So these bitcoins are being swept off the market, decreasing the supply, and at the same time, because of the success of the strategy and the different pros afforded from the strategy, increasing the demand, which basic economics tells you when you have a decreasing supply and an increase in demand, the price will go up. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so you, you mentioned that these companies, after they buy all this Bitcoin, they can now generate yield with it. Is that kind of how we discussed last week, how you can loan your Bitcoin out for yield? Or are they, are they doing it in different ways since they own so much of it? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's, there's multiple ways to do it, but a lot of it has to do with DeFi, which we talked about on the previous episode. Uh, and the, the major pro that they're seeing right now is just based on those simple supply demand economics. The demand is outpacing the supply and the price is going up. As the price goes up, their assets, their, their personal business blockchain, right? Their personal business ledger. As Bitcoin goes up in value, their assets go up in value. Well, assets equals liabilities. So when you get to a certain extent where your assets are so far above your liabilities, for a publicly traded company, it makes sense to go ahead and do what Michael Saylor did and issue more debt. Why not? The Federal Reserve will let you issue debt at what? 0.79%. They issued that debt, $500, $600 million worth of debt at 0.79%. So, you know, he's already made enough on his Bitcoin investment to pay back the debt plus interest. But why would he do that? Why would he try to capture value now when he knows that value is just going to continue to grow? I'm sure in the future, as Bitcoin continues to increase in value, maybe when we get closer to the $80,000, $90,000 range, that MicroStrategy will issue even more debt and they'll take that money and they'll build their businesses. And the businesses that adopt Bitcoin as a reserve treasury asset will have an extreme advantage over the companies that choose not to do that because those companies will be gaining purchasing power and then being able to take on additional liabilities to build their company while the other companies will be left with losing purchasing power year over year. Okay. Okay. So the decision for Tesla to use 7.7% of their treasury to buy Bitcoin, what is that going to do to the price in the market for Bitcoin micro and then also macro? Right. So we, we've seen the, the micro effect. You know, the micro effect was putting in a new all-time high above 42,000 and breaking out of this consolidation phase. And, you know, for people who haven't been following Bit Bitcoin for a long time, this may be like, oh, you know, uh, yeah, Tesla came out. You know, if you go back to the other consolidation periods, there's always some form of news. There's always some kind of announcement or something that seems to bring Bitcoin to the next level. You know, just when you think, just when people are getting bearish, right? Everybody's talking about the CME futures for Ethereum and how it's not going to be, you know, look what happened last time for futures for Bitcoin. You know, things are going to get turned down. Bitcoin can come back down into the 20,000s. And, you know, you kind of have like this mainstream understanding that we've already had a good bull run and the path of least resistance is to the downside. And then boom, you get a piece of news like this and you're off to the next level. So uh, for, for those of us, uh, that follow us on our Trinity Trading Discord and our members with us, you know that we've been talking about this for a while, that Bitcoin would, after consolidation, go to the 46 level and then go to the 63 level. So it just so happens that this news coincides with putting in that new all-time high. 
So and from a micro perspective, you know, Bitcoin's going to 46 and then it's going to 63. From a macro perspective, I do believe that the cryptonomic cycle is still one of the most important understandings for any Bitcoin investor to have because cycles are natural. Cycles are, are just part of the business um, paradigm. And that's because of the human element. Humans like to take risk. Uh, and when, you, when that risk is introduced into the system, you, you create cycles where assets go from being fair value to overvalued, back to fair value to undervalued, then the fair value and overvalued and all the way again. Uh, and we see those cycles in you know, real estate, commodities, like we talked about before on the first episode. You know, these cycles are natural. And uh, the only way that I see that the cryptonomics cycle doesn't play a role in the macro picture, meaning that sometime in the future, the supply of Bitcoin will overpower the demand. Mm -hmm. The only way that doesn't happen is if we start to see people follow suit with micro strategy and Tesla. And that's why Tesla is such a big thing. Like you said, Elon Musk, richest man in the world. He's a thought leader. People look, look to him for the future of humanity, for the future of technology. Uh, you know, he seems to be the one coming up with the ideas about where we want to go with these things. So people look to him and now he's making that move. So this is definitely, you know, this could be the first domino. MicroStrategy, you know, was the leader, but Tesla could be the first domino that ends up knocking down all the dominoes and forcing them to, to make Bitcoin a, a reserve asset on their treasury. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great point. That kind of leads me to my next question. I was going to ask, you know, what sort of domino effect do you foresee happening? But I guess to reword that question is how quickly do you see that happen? Yeah, well, that's one thing. I think, you know, personally, I was not expecting this kind of adoption until maybe after the next halving in 2024. Um, this is the fastest that I've ever seen the market move forward. Um, and and it, we are in bull phase B, so we should be expecting extremely bullish things to be happening and bullish news and announcements and stuff. But um, adding Bitcoin as a reserve asset to publicly traded companies, uh, and like you had mentioned earlier in our chat, uh, even the mayor of Miami considering adding Bitcoin as a reserve asset to the city's balance sheet. So if you start to see, talk about a domino effect, if you start to see these public companies adding Bitcoin to the reserve treasury asset because Tesla made that jump and now stockholders are asking, listen, if Elon Musk and Tesla are taking advantage of Bitcoin, why the hell are we not? Doesn't mean you have to go full micro strategy and do 100%, but if Tesla's doing 7.7%, we better at least be doing one to 2%. And now that's transitioning into politics, into cities. And, it, and, and eventually it will, you know, that's part of the adoption curve. You know, we're transitioning out of the early adopters and institutional investment phase, and we're going into the mainstream phase. And when we do that, the cryptonomic cycle is not as important anymore. It was important in the beginning because it's all based on fair value and price discovery and supply and demand and free, free economics. But after you move from early adopters and institutional investors into the adoption phase, now you have what looks more like, like an S-curve. It just goes straight up, straight up until issuance stops and then flattens out. So we could be going into what they call hyper-Bitcoinization. And you know, at that point, you don't sell your Bitcoin for any amount of dollars. Bitcoin could go to a million dollars plus if all these public companies start buying it to add to their reserve asset. And then they figure out, 
uh-oh, when we stop buying Bitcoin and the demand goes down and supply starts to take over, then our share prices are going down. But if we continually and consistently dollar cost average into Bitcoin, the price keeps going up and our share prices keep going up. And then when we get, and then we can issue more debt. You know, it's like a self-incentivized system where they buy Bitcoin to help themselves to issue more debt to build their company. And the more you buy, the more you, the more asset you have. The more asset you have, the more debt you can issue. You know, it's like there is no. It's once it starts, it's like Pandora's box, and you just need to keep going and going and going and going. Uh, and I think the, this is the first step. Like you said, what's the domino effect? Tesla getting in, a thought leader getting in, maybe the next domino is something like Apple, uh, Alphabet, you know, any one of those companies that you see is sitting on billions and billions of dollars of cash. You know, what percentage of that pile of cash are they going to put into Bitcoin in order to be sure that they're using the best strategy to store value for their shareholders? Yeah. And I mean, kind of towards the point you're talking about how they are incentivized to keep buying it, to keep the supply lower than demand, but Bitcoin is a finite supply as it is. So at some point there's just going to be no more Bitcoin to buy. That's right. That's absolutely right. So if we get to the point where there's a constant demand on Bitcoin because it's been made a reserve treasury asset. And because so many different public companies and potentially even cities and city states are purchasing it to add to their balance sheets, when demand overpowers supply to the point where supply can never overpower demand, that's when you've reached adoption. And that's when you go into that S curve where Bitcoin will go a million, 5 million, 10 million, there is no dollar amount on it because all the dollars being earned are just going to be put directly in the Bitcoin because you don't want to earn those dollars and store them in dollars. You just want to earn them in dollars and store that wealth in Bitcoin. So it's, it's a, it would be a constant bid under Bitcoin. And I'm not saying you wouldn't have pullbacks. I think you, there's still a place for 30% pullbacks. Uh, you know, It's not going to just go straight up. Nothing can go straight up. But with a constant bid under it, just like the stock market from the Federal Reserve, the general direction is going to be up until the supply can outweigh the demand. But like I said, if that happens and Bitcoin becomes the reserve treasury asset, that's Pandora's box. Supply will never outpace demand and we will enter into the adoption phase and Bitcoin will consistently go up year after year after year after year. So something that I learned is happening in Western countries like Russia um, and some of those other countries over in Asia is that the government are using clean energy to, to mine Bitcoin. Do you see that happening within like local state governments here? Like maybe, you know, Miami starts using clean energy to mine Bitcoin um, instead of like putting their actual treasury reserves into it? Yeah, so that is a fantastic question. And some miners look at Bitcoin mining as an opportunity for what we call electrical arbitrage. And I wouldn't say that the main way of mining Bitcoin and using electricity is using clean energy. It's kind of like a misnomer. What we're doing is we're using that dirty energy. We're using the coal. We're using all that dirty energy that is typically wasted. Right. So so there's certain plants around the world that produce a certain amount of electricity. And if they can't sell it to a municipality or they they can't sell it 
then it's just wasted. It's generated and never used. So there's a lot of waste of energy there. So Bitcoin comes in and cleans up the energy space by storing that energy that's generated. If they can't sell it, then you store that energy in Bitcoin, right? You use it to mine and store that value in Bitcoin because you can't sell the energy. Right now, they're generating that energy and some of that energy is being wasted, which of course, you know, for they say sustainability reasons, you don't really want to have that energy being wasted. So therefore we can store that energy in Bitcoin so it's not wasted and that value can grow for you. Uh, so, you know, when it comes to clean energy, there's so much energy being used uh, from traditional means of energy generation. And there's so much wasted energy in, from the traditional ways of, of, of how we generate energy that Bitcoin is coming in and cleaning up the waste. Bitcoin is coming in and saying, hey, you're, you can't sell that energy. Let's store it in Bitcoin. Let's not waste it. And I think that's, you know, that's the bigger thing. That's the more effective energy movement when it comes to Bitcoin mining versus you know, using solar power or wind energy or, or something like that to, to mine Bitcoin. Because there, there is a large uh, amount of energy uses in Bitcoin mining Therefore, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to use these clean energy methods, since a lot of them are um, not as effective or they don't produce as much energy as the as the traditional methods. You know, in other words, solar energy, wind energy, all of that energy that's being generated is being used and being sold. But when you go to a coal, a coal plant or something, they might only be using 70, 75 percent of their energy. So that extra 20, 25%, 30% of that energy, which is typically wasted, now doesn't have to be wasted. It can be stored in Bitcoin. And that opens up the doors for a lot of different possibilities. Okay. Yeah, no. That makes sense. And like, I mean, this massive race to just store your energy in Bitcoin amongst governments, whether it's state governments or, you know, countries, what is that going to do to the market for it? like macro wise i feel like long term like if all these countries are just storing all this bitcoin instead of it going to exchanges that kind of i mean that kind of controls the supply away from the public right yeah absolutely i mean the the bitcoin is being institutionalized right now bitcoin mining is being institutionalized right now probably in the next year the average joe will be priced out of bitcoin just simply, you know, you're only going to be able to afford, if you're working a nine to five and maybe you can put in a couple hundred dollars every couple of weeks into Bitcoin, right now you're getting a good amount of Bitcoin. But in the future, when Bitcoin's trading for a hundred thousand plus or potentially even a million dollars plus, if we see hyper Bitcoinization, you know, that hundred to $200 a week is going to get you a very minimal amount of Bitcoin. So yeah, basically- If it hits a hundred K, 0.1 Bitcoin is $10,000. Like- right. Not many people have $10,000 to get a tenth of a Bitcoin, you know? Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because a lot of people think that they have to buy a full Bitcoin and you don't have to buy a full Bitcoin. The smallest unit of a Bitcoin is a Satoshi and there are 100 million Satoshis per Bitcoin. And what's happening right now is the world is beginning to reprice, not the world yet, but MicroStrategy and Tesla and uh, institutions are repricing the world in Satoshis. That's what's happening right now. The world is being repriced in Satoshis. 
And what we call the dollar store today may one day be called the Satoshi store uh, because the world is being repriced because you cannot price things in a dilutionary currency because that steals wealth from people. And eventually people are going to understand it, right? This is the same thing that's happened with every single reserve currency before Bitcoin. The currency, you know, you, I mean, take your pick, whether it's the dollar, the pound, going back to uh, even having the sterling silver pound, uh, Spain had the world reserve currency for, for a while. Current, world reserve currencies last somewhere between 90 and 120 years before they fizzle out. And the reason that they have always fizzled out up until this day is because the governments who were in control of those currencies, the kings and queens, diluted that currency to the point where people finally realized we don't want to price things in this anymore. We don't want to use this anymore. And that's where we are today. The, the dollar is being diluted at such a rate where people now are starting to pay attention. And at least the institutions and the CEOs and CFOs are saying, we don't want to store our value in the dollar anymore. So we've begun that paradigm shift on a macro basis. And so the dollar being diluted, that's happening because of how many, you know, how much we're printing with all the stimulus bills and you know, bailing companies out, et cetera, et cetera, that we've been doing for the past couple of decades. That's, that's what you're referring to when you say dilution? Yeah, so it's, it's not only the stimulus, it's not only the quantitative easing and the bailouts, but it's, it's, the, it's the working budget, you know? So you, you look at yourself and you go, you know what? Okay, I earn $5,000 a month. That means I can spend $5,000 a month, but not a penny more, or else I'm not gonna have money to pay for anything. I'm gonna be in debt. But the government... They earn $3.5 trillion per year. They take it from us through the form of taxes, which is fine. That's fine. Everybody's happy to pay their taxes and live in a safe society where everybody can feel comfortable and there's law and order. That's a price that people are willing to pay and deservedly so. Whether you're an anarcho-capitalist or whether you're a patriot, it's, it's okay. Nobody, nobody in Bitcoin is, is only the extremists are saying, you know, you have to get rid of government. You have to do all this stuff. What we're trying to say is we don't want the government to be able to steal our time and energy because that's truly what dollars represent. Dollars represent your time and your energy. You trade your time and your energy at work for dollars. Therefore, you're valuing your time and your energy in dollars. And now the CFOs and the corporations and the institutions are saying, whoa, we can't value our time and energy in dollars because the government is diluting the dollars. The government is taking from our time and energy. We got a bag of time and energy right here and the government is coming with a knife and stabbing holes in it. And it's just leaking time and energy, it's just leaking money. And you come up to Bitcoin and you say, here, I have my case of Bitcoin and the government comes up with a knife and nothing happens. The knife just bounces off. It's not leaking any time. It's not leaking any energy. You're storing your value. And that's, that's the transition that we're making because the governments are trying to steal that value by collecting three and a half trillion, but consistently spending more than seven. Yeah, yeah. So even if there was no stimulus, even if there was no quantitative easing or bailouts, we would still be printing money because the government, they vote, they raise their hands and they vote to spend more than they're collecting. So let's, uh, let's explain quantitative easing for the audience, because I think a lot of people hear it, but they don't really know what it means. Right. So 
Quantitative easing is simply the Federal Reserve providing funds and bailouts for companies who are over leveraged. So you'll buy, but they'll buy bonds. And because of coronavirus, now they can even buy uh, corporate bonds. So the Federal Reserve will provide, when you sell stock, when a company sells stock, they're trying to raise money. They're giving you stock and then they're taking the money. Well, what do they do with the money? Just leave it in the bank? No, they go and they build their business. What happens is when you get quantitative easing, you're, you, the, the economy isn't doing well, your numbers aren't where they need to be, you're already over leveraged because of the broken credit markets and the way that works. So you're not, you're gonna start to fi- fall back on payments. You're gonna default. So instead of letting that happen, the Federal Reserve comes in and says, well, you can just issue more debt and then we'll buy that debt for you. So you can take the money that we use to buy your debt to go and conduct businesses or to pay your, your credit loans and stuff like that to keep the system going, to keep the wheels moving. Because, And that's why they're doing far, forbearance for people and stuff who can't pay right now. Because if that stopped, then the, like we said before, the illusion ends overnight. No, that I mean, it makes total sense. Um, and it's honestly like the whole quantitative easing thing is, I mean, it seems really corrupt. If you just, I mean, now that they're buying corporate bonds, isn't that like the government trying to like gain equity in public companies? Well, I wish it was the government because at least the government, we, we, the people would have some sort of claim to it, but the Federal Reserve is a private institution. Oh, it's the Federal Reserve thing. So you have you have private banking families who are buying huge swaths of these publicly traded companies by buying out their debt by just printing money and calling it quantitative easing, and by having the politicians that who they already bought and paid for, who are their puppets, making it legal for them to do so. And so, then, go ahead. What to put the cherry on top? They come down with stupid economic theories like trickle down economics. I'm sure people have heard that saying like, oh, well, if we let the corporations borrow at zero to 0.25% and then the corporations go buy a plant over here and that creates jobs, then we're creating stimulus. Well, that would be true if on the other end, the bankers who you gave permission to do that weren't stealing from your savings, right? They tell you to save and stuff your piggy bank and then give you no savings. And when, and when yields go negative, they're going to draw from your principal like they do in Europe. So they tell you to do that, and then they do the opposite. And that's what these people say. Th- these people, they say one thing and then do another. And that's what the American people are tired of. They're tired of the hypocrisy, right? They're just tired of being told to do one thing and then watching the people who told them to do that do another thing. And people don't have the power to stand up to this. They don't have the power to organize and do what they they need to do to fight back. But companies, they do have the power to do that. And they are standing up and these institutions are standing up and they're saying, you know what, we're not gonna store our value in the dollar because it's just, you know, mathematically, it's not the right decision to make. It's too much risk for our shareholders. And and hopefully that understanding, we're not gonna see a trickle down economics, but hopefully we see trickle down understanding and people are gonna be able to adopt the understanding of the institutions and the CFOs and the CEOs and see why they're getting Bitcoin and adding it as a reserve treasury, a reserve treasury asset. And then to start to do that for their own books, to start to balance out their own net worth properly. So with this news about Tesla today, how does that affect your strategy um, with Bitcoin? 
Well, it, it doesn't affect my strategy as of right now. As of right now, my strategy is still based on the cryptonomic cycle. But the number one thing I will be looking for going forward is if we start to transition out of this institutional phase and into the adoption phase. And, the, and the, what we'll watch for to see if that happens is, is, do, is uh, Tesla going to be that domino that knocks the rest of the dominoes down? If it is, there's a very high chance we go into hyper-Bitcoinization. If we don't see that, I believe the cryptonomic cycle will hold true and we, and we may have to wait to the 2024 or 2028 halving until we see that transition into the adoption curve or that transition into hyper-Bitcoinization. So like, what would be the telltale sign that we're going into adoption phase? It would be the publicly traded companies start adding Bitcoin as their reserve treasury asset. And then the ones who are not adding it are feeling pressure to add it. And then at the same time, cities like Miami and then other cities start to add it to their balance sheets. So when we start to see that these publicly traded companies and that the, the cities are starting to add Bitcoin as a reserve treasury asset, even to their balance sheets, that's the telltale sign that we're heading into the adoption phase and we're going to see hyper Bitcoinization. And how many companies would you need to see start doing that for you to be like, all right, we're, we're, we're going into adoption? I think a, a majority of companies, you need, you need 51% of the companies or more to, to really say, yeah, this is a trend that's not going to stop. This is not just, you know, for companies who are tech related or, or going into that tech vertical. You have a lot of cash. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is, uh, this is for everybody. You know, if your company makes money and you have a treasury with dollars in it, you should have one to 2%. You should have three to 5%. You should have five to 7%. You should have 10%. You, so those percents keep climbing and climbing and climbing uh, and more and more companies start to do it. And that's, you know, that's what I'm looking out for to make the right decision when the time comes, whether or not to sell and take profit or to collateralize and let that upside uh, still be there for you. Okay. All right, cool. Um, you know, what, what, what else should the listeners, you know, really take in and uh, learn from, um, this Tesla news? Well, I think, you know, the, the, the most important thing to take away is that the, the Bitcoin itself might perform the duties of the Federal Reserve better than the Federal Reserve ever could, right? Which, the, Federal which is what? the Federal Reserve is there to, to fluff the markets, to loan out cheap money to corporates so they can perform stock buybacks and they, they can raise equity for, for basically free. And the, and the reason they want to do that is to keep the stock prices going up, to keep the inflationary pressure there uh, so that we don't go into a deflationary cycle. And explain right? how Bitcoin is doing that better than the Federal Reserve. So just look at MicroStrategy stock. Watch Tesla stock over the next three months. As the price of Bitcoin goes up, the price of their stock has to go up because Bitcoin is an asset on the company's balance sheet and the stock price is based on the assets and liabilities of the company's balance sheet. So as the assets increase, the stock price must increase. Mm -hmm. Therefore, as Bitcoin continues to go up in value, the companies that do add it as a treasury reserve asset, their stock is going to go up in value. Eventually, they'll get to a point where their assets far outweigh their liabilities and they'll be able to do another stock issuance, another debt raise 
and they'll be able to take that money, invest it in their business and capture more of the market. The Federal Reserve doesn't let you do that. It, it kind of lets you do that, but it does it in a way where it steals wealth from the small person, right? It rewards the corporates and steals from the savers. It rewards the risk takers and steals from the savers. In this case scenario, if you're saving in Bitcoin, the scenario rewards the savers and rewards the corporates. So you can see it's a different economic setup with a different incentive structure. So correct me if I'm wrong, but Bitcoin is essentially creating economic activity activity just by other by companies buying is creating economic activity more so than what the Fed can do just by printing money. And since Bitcoin is creating that economic economic activity without the Fed, I mean, it's not inflating at all. Right. So so instead of companies borrowing from the Fed at zero to zero point two five percent, they're probably just better off adding Bitcoin as a reserve treasury asset and then buying Bitcoin. Because the more Bitcoin they, they buy, the more they contribute to the demand on Bitcoin, the higher the price is going to go. The higher the price goes, the more their holdings are worth. The more their holdings are worth, the more their stock value is going to go up. That doesn't necessarily happen when you borrow money from the Fed. Just because you're borrowing cheap money and you're adding to your liabilities for a very small margin, that's not the same as an increase in assets, right? So when they borrow from the Fed for free, they're increasing their liabilities, not their assets. When you're increasing your assets, it's a whole different thing than when you're increasing your liabilities. So we're going to see positive economic uh, incentives based on your asset growth rather than liability growth. So transitioning from like the institutional talk to the, like a retail investor like me, should I think about taking out a loan to buy Bitcoin to buy more? Or is that still kind of risky based off the volatility? Well, first of all, let me just say that debt is typically a bad thing to have, right? Um, the concept of debt in the traditional system is what I like to call debt slavery, because most people, you know, I want my house, I want my car, I want my pool, and, you know, I want my boat. And the bank says, okay, well, we'll give you the money for that. And then the person says, okay, I'll work the rest of my life for that. So you're trading your time and energy from the rest of your life, your most valuable asset, right? Nobody knows how much time they have and you can't buy any more of it. But now you're trading it for that debt, to pay off that debt, to pay off the things that you thought that you wanted. And I think, you know, it's pretty common sense that everybody is not extremely passionate about the work that they do. So, you know, being able to work in something that you're passionate about, um, you're going to make more money, first of all. But second of all, it's harder to get into that. You really need to have your time and energy free so that you can spend it on what you're passionate about. And then from there, that passion will drive you to be the best at what you do. And then you'll be able to make money off of that passion. Yeah, and but if, if I take a $45,000 loan out right now and buy a Bitcoin, and Bitcoin shoots to 90K in three weeks, I can pay back my loan by selling half my Bitcoin or take a loan out or you know use my Bitcoin as collateral, take a loan out and pay back the first loan in two in three weeks right so the so the way that i personally think about it is through not through the perspective of assets and liabilities 
but through the perspective of cash flow. So if you're gonna if you're gonna take out a loan for forty five thousand, you're gonna create negative cash flow, right? You're gonna have to make payments on that month after month after month after month. And you're right, it, it may work out for you, but in my opinion, you never should add negative cash flow without you know the asset being there. So if you're gonna collateralize your house and then rent it out, right? If you're gonna take out a cash out refi and buy another house and rent it out, and then that the rent on that house is gonna create more income than your monthly payment. So you'll be able to afford your monthly payment and there'll be a little bit of profit left over to help pay down the principal. Well, then there, you know, that's a good decision because it, it's not a net negative cash flow. It's actually a net positive cash flow. But if you're just going to take out a loan and put it in Bitcoin and wait, meanwhile, you're going to have to, you're going to create a net negative cash flow for yourself because that money that you're earning is now going to be paid into uh, that loan. So I, I, I recommend to look at it from a cash flow perspective. And that's really what got me so passionate about DeFi because I was really passionate about real estate. You know, when I first did well in crypto, the first thing I did was real estate because it's just common sense, right? You buy a rental property, you rent it out, the property pays for itself and you get to make money and the property appreciates over time. So it's like, you know, it's, it's a no brainer. But when it comes to risk reward, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, is that real estate does go through cycles. Real estate could come back 30%. It could come, you know, look at 2008. It always goes through cycles. And if you're a long-term investor, then you just wait, right? Just wait another 20 years and it'll go back up to an even higher price. So it, it depends on your strategy. But when it comes to DeFi and cash flow, now I can take zero risk because the risk on my savings account is zero. My savings is my savings. It's not going to it's not going to magically disappear. This is not Europe where the yields are negative and they're taking from my principal. This is DeFi where the yields are positive and I'm getting eight to 10% paid on my savings account. And that creates a super positive cash flow. And to, it's to the point where, you know, if people are able to put in around $600,000, then you can raise a family of four or five and have your time and value freed up to be, to do what you want to uh, be passionate about. And, that to me is the most important thing. Get your cash flows set up the right way because the way to the way to free your family generationally is to establish cash flows, not to build a real big piggy bank, right? We've all seen those lottery shows where this person won the lottery and then like five years later, they're broke, right? Because they, they have this huge piggy bank and then they just pick from the piggy bank and then eventually the piggy bank is empty. But we want to get people into a place. We want to educate people and let them know, hey, listen, we don't want to big, build a big piggy bank that you can draw from later. We want to build a piggy bank that's spitting out money for you. And we want to make sure that you have net positive cash flows. So, you know, as far as adding debt to buy Bitcoin, even though it could go up and it could work out in your favor, I'm, I'm always going to say no to adding a net negative cash flow. So, so like you, you mentioned you use DeFi to create cash flow. Like what are you doing? Are you loaning out Bitcoin you own for interest? Well, there's multiple strategies. The first thing you can do is you can deposit to a broker like Nexo and earn the eight to 10%. The second thing you can do is you can provide liquidity on Aave and earn your yield. You can provide liquidity on Uniswap or SushiSwap and earn your yield. You can go around and hop around like a broker would into different types of liquidity pools, whether it's from automated market makers or decentralized exchanges, and you can earn your yield that way. So I think there's a lot of different strategies that are being used 
by the DeFi banks and by DeFi participants in order to generate that yield. Okay, yeah. So like if you took a look, I mean, I'm going back to the loan thing. So if I took a loan out and bought a Bitcoin with it, but then I used that Bitcoin in a DeFi protocol to earn yield, like wouldn't that be kind of like me taking out money to buy a house that's going to be an income producing property? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So if you're going to, if you're going to take out a $45,000 loan and you're going to buy one Bitcoin and then you bought that Bitcoin and you took out that loan at say 5% and then you take that Bitcoin and you wrap it and you're generating 8%, then that's a good idea because that 8% interest is going to cover your 5% plus your principal. So now I, however, own, now I own another Bitcoin. Right. So eventually you will pay off that debt and you will still own the Bitcoin and you'll be able to keep the entirety of that cash flow rather than just the difference between the borrowing rate and the generating rate. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I think that's all the time we have today, CJ. Uh, thanks for hopping on and doing this emergency uh, you know, podcast for everyone. And uh, we look forward to uh, the next episode and you know, what else? What else we can uh, figure out for everyone and um, to the listeners, if you guys have any questions you want us to answer specifically, we're going to start doing like a question and answer session on each podcast. So you can, um, you know, comment on the podcast wherever you listen to, you can DM us on Instagram, whatever questions you have and you want answered, um, just let us know. And uh, we're happy to answer them and, you know, just keep feeding the audience what they want to hear. All right, CJ, you have a great day, man. We'll talk soon. Sounds good. See you guys next.